Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Amen, amen. Thanks so much, Brian. Great to be with you guys this morning. Thank you again for coming and finding a new venue. Um, It's actually good for us because we will actually be back here next month and the month after that. So we have a couple Sundays where we're not going to be over at Kettner. Um, But I got to say, we are concluding our series on prayer today. But if you're ever just like, man, I I just feel like I want to get better at prayer, I would talk to Brian because it seems like everything he does, God's favors on his life. Um, like you, you guys, you have those friends, right? Like everywhere they go, people just throw free stuff at them. There's always a parking spot available. It's just a lot of favor. We, I actually on Wednesday night, I went up for my friend's birthday, went to the Lakers game and I'm not a Lakers fan. I have to just let you know that I'm a Christian, so I love Jesus. Uh, but what we didn't know is actually the Barnes were there as well with their friend Sarah. And so we're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we're going to the same game. We're actually next to each other. And, and towards the end of the game, they do this thing where they go fan of the game, and they start, like, showcasing, like, 30, 40 different people as far as, like, like these are the best fans that we have in the audience. And I'm like, and I'm like watch, Brian's going to get it. It's just, of course, Brian will get it. And sure enough, fan of the game, Brian, with Caleb on his shoulders, dancing, gets put on the Jumbotron at Crypto Arena. And then I'm like, and, like, out of, like, 30 or 40 people, I'm like, watch, they're probably going to actually win fan of the game. And sure enough, at the very end, and the fan of the game is section 219. And it's Brian and Caleb dancing around. And I'm like, wow. They go and give Caleb a $100 gift card to Lakers store. So I'm just saying, if you're like, I need to get better at prayer, there's something they've got that you want. Let me just tell you right now. I don't know what it is. I'm still trying to figure it out. But there's just people you can follow in that. Uh, It's South Africa. Is it a South African favor? Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't know. Um, But guys, it is is a privilege getting to be down here. I get to come down here maybe once or twice a month. But every time I'm here, my heart is just so full getting to see what God is doing uh, in this place and, and seeing more and more new faces and the faces that are here getting more um, knit together. Um, and I would say this, one of the ways as a church that we continue want to move forward is not just to make space on the Sunday gathering or even things that we do during the week, like like a, on the prayer room, but we, uh, we want to invite you guys in closer, tight-knit communities that we call open tables. And those actually just launched. So if you're just like, how do I... Like, I've been loving coming on Sundays. I feel like this might be my church. What would be a great next step for me? If you have not signed up to be a part of an open table, I'd really encourage you guys to do that. You can just go on lightsandiego.com, and you can look down, and it'll show the ones that are closer to downtown. We'd love for you to do that. Um, But this, as we were kind of mapping out this series, we opened up this series talking about our posture, that prayer ultimately begins with our understanding of who God is and who we are and how we sit in that how to be still before God. We talked about how when we come to God, we come within uh, a framework of adoration, recognizing that he is the God Almighty, and yet he's intimate and reveals himself as Father. Last week um, was a beautiful week that we got to talk about intercession. We got to talk about how God invites us into the middle, into the gap, to, to pray on behalf of people and to pray on behalf of needs in the world. 
And so today as we end it, we wanted to end it with the concept of resilient prayer. Because this series, although it may end, prayer can't end. This has to continue to be the centerpiece of who we are as a church. And so we want to talk about that. How do we become as a culture a praying community? How do you as an individual become a praying person? And how does this not kind of ebb and flow based on the, the, the sermon series or when we're highlighting it or if it's a Thursday morning or a Tuesday morning over at Luce? It's, it's how, how do we make this something that is central to who we are? So we want to talk about what it means to pray with resilience. And we're going to be doing that by looking at three different things that will help form that. Number one is Jesus' emphasis that the church is to be called a house of prayer. Secondly, we want to talk about, in my opinion, one of the major hurdles for us being a praying people. And it's dealing with the mystery of disappointment in prayer. And then lastly, we want to end with establishing rhythms of, of gratitude, of unceasing prayer in our lives. And so I want to begin by talking about Jesus' ethos behind the church and what he wanted. But it begins actually before the church. We actually see this showing up throughout the Old Testament as well, that when he talks about his people, there is this desire for them to be a people who pray. Why? Because we serve a relational God. And prayer is the intersection where we get to meet and commune with this God. And so I wanted to highlight the very first, as far as what we know, 24-7 prayer movement didn't start in Kansas City a little bit ago. It didn't start with Pete Gregg. It didn't start at Asbury University eight or nine days ago. It started thousands of years ago when God looked at a, at a young man named David and said, you're going to be king. And when he anointed him as king, he said something really interesting. He says, I'm not looking at outward appearance because when they were looking at who was going to be king next, they were looking at things that you would want in a king, someone of strong stature, someone who had ability to lead, someone who had was maybe a firstborn and had the Lord's blessing on him. But all of that was bypassed because there was something about David that later on we'd find out that he was called a man after God's own heart. That was the thing God was looking for. But what's interesting about David's life is his biography is not great. If you've ever read about David, some of the things that he's done is absolutely horrendous. Um, would never be hired at Light Church, probably would never be allowed into Point Loma. Like, I'm just saying, like, this guy's life is was really um, filled with some pretty significant failures. But we have his prayer book. We actually have more written down prayers from David than anyone else in the Bible. And within that, we see something of his heart. We see something that's revealed. And one of my favorite stories that kind of highlights his, his posture towards the Lord in prayer and in worship and in his presence comes from right after he uh, was, became king. So Saul's just died. He's become king. He's, he's been waiting to become king now for years. And it talks about that when he became king, he, he recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, which is, was in the middle of God's tabernacle that would be where God's presence would dwell that had been taken over by the Philistines. So he recaptures it and he brings back into Jerusalem. This is what I love. They put it at the middle of the city. God's presence for the Jewish people is always in the middle of the city. And this is how David returns. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says this, wearing a linen ephod, which is priestly underwear, 
They don't give it to pastors anymore, apparently. But that was a thing back then. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offering and fellowship offering before the Lord. And so you see this scene where David is coming in after a victory. And this is what's really interesting. He's not wearing his kingly robe. He's wearing priestly garments. He comes back into the city as a priest. So we talked about last week as an intercessor. He's coming in as a man of prayer. And he's doing it in not in this kind of like solemn monk-like way. He's doing it in this exuberant, dancing, extravagant, slightly embarrassing kind of way. So much so that his wife is looking at him and later on tries to rebuke him. Saying, look at you, just making a skeptical of yourself. The spectacle of yourself. Look at you just dancing around the city. Aren't, aren't, you, aren't you glad? And, and he said, no, 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 don't, don't you get it? I'll become even more undignified than this. There's something inside David's heart that couldn't keep it within. And so this is what theologians have pointed out a couple of things. Number one, this was David's triumphal entry as king. This was his coming into the city that he now leads, marked by him as a priest, marked him with exuberant worship. And David reigned as king for 33 years, which is interesting because Jesus lived for 33 years. What scholars believe is from that moment on, with under David's monarchy, prayer never stopped in that tent. 24-7, prayer and worship never ceased. Now, I want to fast forward a little bit because one of the most common titles given for Jesus was Son of David. He was what was called the Messiah, the promised one that would come after David, that would reestablish the people of God. And when Jesus shows up, like David, carries a strong emphasis on prayer. His first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is about prayer. And his last sermon, the Olivet Discourse, is about prayer. There's 175 verses on prayer found in the four Gospels alone. For Jesus, prayer was not a secondary issue. Prayer was central to everything he did. So what I want to do is I actually want to focus on Jesus's version of his triumphal entry. We we learned about David, and a few hundred years later, we're going to learn about Jesus who comes as his offspring as the promised Messiah. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, And went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, pause right here. Jesus comes in. Does the whole like donkey, palm branches thing. If you've ever been around for Palm Sunday. This is kind of that moment. And everyone high expectation that this would become this new militaristic leader. Who would ultimately liberate them from Rome. And bring about the restored kingdom of Israel. And as he's doing this. Jesus comes to the temple. But by that time it's actually late. And he look, it says he looks around. 
And because of the time, he's like, whatever's in his heart, he's like, I'm going to do this tomorrow. So he goes and sleeps on it, which is always like a good thing. If you're about to like do something big, isn't it always good to like just sleep on it a little bit? Like it's just like just give it some time. And so he does that. In verse 15, we're going to pick up the story. It says, on reaching Jerusalem the next day, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus isn't coming in in this like hot emotional state. He takes the night to pray about, it's like, okay, what's the best plan of action here? And he's like, I know. I'm going to go in and physically flip over tables and physically stop people from trading merchandise. This was his like calmed down plan. And so he goes and, he, and, he, and, he, and he's doing all these things. And, and people are like, what in the world? We thought you were coming to overthrow Rome and you're overthrowing our practices in our temple. And as he does, he looks around, he says, what's, what's instilling this anger, this just indignation in me is that in Isaiah 56, it says that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of robbers. Now, a little bit of context here. What was happening based on how the temple was set up is that if you were not an Israelite male, you were not allowed in to where God's presence was held. It doesn't mean you were not allowed in, but because of how they were exchanging the money, if you were not an Israelite, they would charge you more, meaning it was costing you more if you were a non-Israelite to come in. So it was essentially kind of a religious racist act that was preventing people from the presence of God. And in his righteous indignation, Jesus goes and flips that on its head and says, no, 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 you don't get it. At the core of my heart, similar to David, is that God's presence is central. Everyone's invited. Everyone gets to pray. No one gets to be cut off from access to who God is. And so I want us to keep that in mind that Jesus, in in, in, in what we see his probably most emotionally angry state we have in all, recorded in all four Gospels, it's about prayer. Jesus is passionate about prayer, and he's passionate about those who feel far from God. And that those two things connect. And so we might be looking at that, and if Jesus is this passionate about prayer, one thing we should ask ourselves is, well, what does Jesus have in mind when it comes to prayer? When, if Jesus is very, very specific about what he wants, we should know exactly what he's talking about. What's the kind of prayer he's after? And this is what we've done the last few weeks, is we focused on the one time Jesus explicitly teaches them, this is how you ought to pray. So I'm going to read this again. I'm going to read you from Luke's account, because Luke gives a condensed version of the Lord's Prayer, but then he expands on it and gives a little bit of an epilogue of, what is, uh, of what's going on beyond this prayer. In Luke chapter 11, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, "Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed." And I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks. The door will be opened. So Jesus uses this picture of essentially a disgruntled neighbor that won't give him bread because of friendship but finally gets up. And and Jesus is doing this in contrast to who his father is. He says, God's not like this. So because he's not like this, don't walk in sheepishly trying to like persuade God to do something. Ask, seek, knock. And when you come with that kind of prayer, you'll find what you're looking for. Why? Because God's not doing that because he's annoyed. He's doing that unlike the neighbor because of your friendship, because of his relational intimacy, because he knows you. Tyler Stane says, in these three verbs, Jesus is naming the trail markers of the, on the common prayer journey, a path tread by men and women of all faiths, stretching all the way back to the beginning. Prayer is a journey that starts with, and need, starts with need, but it ends in relationship. I love that. Prayer is something that starts with need, but it ends in relationship. Need first drives us to our knees, but relationship keeps us there. So a couple of the notes on ask, seek, and knock. Ask implies relational dependence, meaning I need something for you. We talked about like how kids are really great question askers, right? Like they have no shame in asking for something else. The word seek is littered throughout the scriptures as a relational term in, in terms of a consistent posture we are to keep. It speaks of a relational journey. And knock implies a relational intimacy. It, it speaks of table fellowship. But here's one thing interesting about all three of these that we don't pick up in our English translations in our Bible is all of these, the verb tense of them is a continual tense, meaning you are to continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock. It would be better read as this, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. This is really the whole point of this morning, that if we are to be a house of prayer, it means that we have to keep asking. We have to keep seeking. We have to keep knocking. That's to be something within us that says, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue to move into this place of seeing the Lord, not, be, not only because of need, but ultimately because of relationship. Even if need drives me to my knees, right? It's relationship that keeps me there. And this is our hope. This is the hope of the whole series. But this is our hope, I would say, just central to our church, is that we would be a people who continue to do this. Now, I want to take a few minutes because the reality is we, 
in our Western progressive culture, we don't struggle with the idea of keeping people out because of uh, religious or national status, for the most part. I'm sure there's some strange kind of groups that do. But in general, in the West, we have a high value of inclusivity. We want to be, and if you're not inclusive, you run the risk of being ostracized in our culture. So we actually have a high value of we want everyone to come. We want everyone to be a part. But I wonder if Jesus came and he flipped tables today, not out of anger, but out of saying, this is, what is keeping us from being a people who ask, seek, and knock? I, I don't know if it's as much kind of a cultural or a religious hurdle as much as it's an ideological hurdle. And that, this is what I want to take, take the next few minutes. And I want to talk about, in my opinion, the thing that keeps us from prayer and keeps, has kept me from prayer the most. And it's the mystery of disappointment. It's, it's, it's an ideological thing that keeps us from prayer. It's like, well, what, what happens when prayer, my prayers aren't answered? What happens if I pray for things that don't come to pass? Or, or what happens when I pray for trivial things and they work out? And when I, when I pray for something really intense, it doesn't. And so I, I, th- these are kind of tricky waters to kind of wade into. Because I know there's a lot of emotion attached to it. Um, at being a pastor, it's very, very common for me to sit down with people and their biggest struggle with God is, where was God in this? It's not like so much like a theological or philosophical like hang up or like, how do we know if God exists? And, and, and sometimes it is. But for the most part, it's it's very much... The sense of like, I, I asked f- for something. Jesus tells me to do it. But the outcome looked very different than what I thought. Tyler Stane in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, says that theologians call the unavoidable question that enters our lives because of suffering theodicy. An English word formed from two Latin words that mean justice of God. There's no spirituality, philosophy, or worldview that manages to sidestep the theodicy riddle. No matter how you explain life, you're stuck trying to fit the square peg called justice into the round hole called suffering. And this is where oftentimes we find ourselves. And within Christianity, there tends to be two traditions that emphasize uh, a different kind of streams of thought. The first one is a tradition that really emphasizes the fixed sovereignty of God. So when you ask the question, why didn't God answer my prayers? The answer is like, well, God is sovereign. And you just, and the idea is you just have to trust him. Um, I've been in those camps. I have friends in those camps. And their idea is, is not to explain it away, but essentially like God's in control of everything. So if you didn't get an answered prayer, then there's some reason behind it, and you need to just trust God. And the gift of that tradition is there's high levels of trust in God's nature. God is good, and even if it doesn't make sense to you, you have to trust that God is good. There's another camp over here that has a high value 
of the dynamic relationship we have with God, meaning our prayers do actually change God's opinions, to change outcomes. I remember Brian talked about this a little bit last week. But then it puts the emphasis, if you didn't get an answered prayer, then it's probably on you. Like, maybe you didn't pray right. Maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe there was something wrong with how you approached God. And I think the problem, and I, again, like I said, I've been, in, I've been in tribes where both of these things have been emphasized, and both leave you with a lot of questions and leave you with a lot of hurt. You either leave you with like, well, I, I don't know what to do with that. And I'm just being told to kind of like trust, but I don't know how to wrestle with that. Or you're over here and you're like, Nate, did I do something? Did I not have enough faith? And so what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to kind of wade into those waters. And I wanted to give us a little bit of a framework on what to do with unanswered prayers. Because I don't think it's as simple as those two ideologies. I think for us to look at all of scripture, there's going to be, uh, I think, a broader sense of what is happening in our world and what God is up to. So I want to give you four things to consider when we have unanswered prayer. Number one, we have God's world. That is beautiful but broken. Number two, we have God's war, which is raw and real. Thirdly, we have God's way, which is mysterious and merciful. And lastly, I want to talk a little bit about God's will, which is ultimately eternal and victorious. And these four things, God's world, God's war, God's way, and God's will, I think will help us be able to have something more rich and deeper than an overly simplistic, like, well, you just got to deal with it, or you just had to have more faith. So the first one I want to talk about is God's world. Genesis chapter 1, at the end of the six days of creation, says that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Very good is actually the Hebrew word tov, and then it repeats again, tov. It's tov, tov, which is, means it's really, really good. So God's creation is beautiful. It's good. But in Genesis chapter 3 is when we're introduced to sin into the story and ultimately what leans into the fall. And the fallout of that moment in Genesis 3.21 says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hands and take also from the tree of life and live forever. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And so this is where we see the, the story shift. God's beautiful world all of a sudden becomes broken. And this is what kind of the Judeo-Christian uh, faith believes as far as the problem of evil in the world. This is why. We have a very clear uh, reason why there's brokenness, why there's disease, why there's heartbreak, why there's depression, why there's the Lakers. You know, all these things that are broken in the world. Just kidding. But then we have another problem because, but didn't Jesus come and fix that? And what does that mean for our world? Is it now like just a little bit more beautiful than broken? And I think the best way I can explain this is actually just to read you what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. 
when he's talking about the world that we live in. And again, I, I hope you guys pay attention to this because I think this will help you when you come to those moments and you th- where you're asking, God, where were you? Where are you? What are we doing? Romans chapter 8, verses 18 says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, and this is an important phrase, was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And so if you were to summarize the world we live in, it's a world that's in bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So this is post-resurrection. The earth still groans in the way that you would in childbirth, groaning inwardly as we, what? Wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I, and we're going to actually go back to Romans 8 at the end of the morning. But what I love about this passage is it actually is so, it so beautifully describes exactly what all of us feel as we walk with Jesus. Oh, we, we live in a world that is in bondage to decay. It says that not only the world, but it says even our own bodies. Like we live in this place that it's, it's not that the world is not beautiful and ordered and, 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 and blessed. It just means that in the midst of it, it's been subjected to frustration, to borrow Paul's language. And so what do we do? We groan. We, we long for the consummation of all things. We long for Jesus' return. We long for the sense of, oh, this is what we're, but I love how it ends. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So the very first thing I would say is if you're, if you're struggling with unanswered prayers, I think you have to come to grips with that we live in a beautiful yet broken world. And so it may not be God kind of, like a villain, like holding something good away from you. Maybe, maybe there's just something in our world that's just broken. This happens all the time when I talk with people with chronic illness, people who've gotten a bad diagnosis, people whose family has suffered the, an accident or something like that. It, and they're like, well, where is God? I'm like, well, it's not that God's absent. We'll get to that. But oftentimes we don't even take into consideration just we're in a broken world. And so sometimes our bodies break down. Actually, all of ours will. Not, not one of us is exempt from that. It doesn't mean that God can't intervene and bring healing, but even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, eventually died again. So this, this building, over time, left unattended to, will break down. And so there is this sense where we have to come to grips that as much as our Western world wants to just be up into the right upward trajectory, that everything's only going to get better for the Christian, we actually have a very strong theology of that in this beautiful world, there is a layer of brokenness that until Jesus returns, will be there. The second thing that we need to remember is God's war. And this is something that, quite honestly, we don't like to talk about very much in the West because we live, we've been very influenced by a secular mindset that doesn't like to talk about a spiritual realm. 
But the reality is, is in this world, there's not only one kingdom and only one will. We talked about this last week. Right? Jesus saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, meaning there's another kingdom. There's another will at play. And oftentimes, and again, people can take to extreme. You can look for a demon under every rock, kind of be that kind of camp, where everything's spiritual warfare. But more, most of us actually just give no credit to the enemy. Like we don't like to think about it. We're too sophisticated. We know better now. We know the reasons. We know the science. And we don't take into consideration that there is, in our prayer life, there is an enemy that is actively at work to stop the advancement of what the people of God are praying towards. You guys want to hear one of the craziest verses in the Bible? Buckle up. Daniel chapter 10. Then he continued. This is an angel talking to Daniel. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. So immediately when Daniel prayed, guess what? God heard it. And I have come in response to them. Verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, we know that Michael's an angel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. We don't have a lot of verses like this in the Bible, but it's one that gives us a window into a reality that's there. We just don't see and really don't pay attention too much. So Daniel prays. God hears him immediately, like the Bible says. An angel, a messenger is sent, and it takes him 21 days. Not because there's traffic, but because there's spiritual warfare. Think about this. I got here as soon as I could. And the only reason I came here is God had to send, like, Michael, the archangel, to go and help me take care of this other principality that was over Persia at that time. Now, I'm sure, like like me, you're like, there's like a thousand questions that come with that. Like, what the heck? How does, what does that mean? How does that work? All I'm saying and the point of reading that passage is actually to say, if you're, if you're praying for something, it does not mean that God does not hear you. It just means we live in, a, in the midst of a war. And that there are other things that are acting upon that. And you might be like, listen, that's the Old Testament. Like Jesus came, died on the cross, and literally said, it is finished. So, and, and doesn't Colossians talk about that he's made a spectacle of all of these things? And again, all of that is, it is true. Yet Paul, who writes about how, how Jesus came and made an embarrassment, a spectacle out of all of these things, also wrote Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So he said, listen, the fight isn't what you think the fight is. I mean, can we just chew on that for a second? In your prayer life, maybe what you're praying about needs to be fixed, but maybe there's something else that you need to be praying against as well. It's so why he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. 
And he goes on and, and, you know, if you guys remember Sunday school, you remember like the whole thing. If you were like a little boy, did you notice how like the silver plastic sword and the shield and the helmet? Anyone else? Oh, man, they need to bring that back. I was like suited up, ready to fight. I didn't really know what was going on there theologically, but I was ready and I had the plastic warfare analogy. Now, I, I want you to listen after he describes all of, all of these things. Verse 18 says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me. Whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will be fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I mean, think about that. One, two, three, four, five times in three verses, Paul concludes his talk on spiritual warfare with prayer. Pray, 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 pray on all occasions. Don't stop praying. What do you do in this war? You pray. If you notice that every single one of the descriptions of the helmet and the belt and, the, and, and, and what's going on your shins and all these things, it's all defensive, except for the sword of the spirit is the only offensive part of this. And then you know what he says to do? Pray, 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 pray. And so there's something that we have to recognize as far as what happens when there's unanswered prayers. And again, we had to listen to all of this. But in God's world, it is beautiful. It's, it's currently broken. There's also God's war that's going on that we are called in to be a part of, praying and interceding and advancing those things forward. The third one talks about God's way. This is where things get a little bit mysterious. Because we're like, okay, cool. The world's broken. I get that. Okay, there's an enemy. I understand. But how does this all work? What, what's God's way in this? Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, gives us another really interesting insight here to his unanswered prayer. Think about this. Paul, the apostle, had unanswered prayers. This is a guy who like raised people from the dead, got freed from prison multiple times. It says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Think about this. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn from my flesh. And Jesus' answer says, my grace is enough for you. In essence, no. The thorn will remain. But my grace will also remain. And Paul's takeaway from that is, actually, if my weakness becomes the canvas for Christ to paint his power upon, then I will boast in my weakness. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's actually where God comes to do this. And I don't know about you, I find a lot of comfort in that. That if the Apostle Paul had prayers that weren't unanswered, but they were answered differently than he would have liked. I find comfort in that. But you know what I really find comfort in? Did you know Jesus prayed a prayer that he didn't get the answer he requested? Chew on that for a second. 
Jesus prayed and did not get the answer he requested. Matthew 26 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will. If, if you have ever struggled, God, why didn't you answer this prayer? My hope this morning is you would actually sense the nearness of Jesus saying, I know exactly what that feels like. And I, and I recognize this is an incredibly sensitive issue. It is in my family. My, my wife and I, we walk with a limp because of unanswered prayers. We've lost loved ones, my niece, my father-in-law, when we pray desperately. And I, and I found myself wrestling with God in those moments. And I want to tell you something. In those moments, I desperately was looking for answers and for reasons that God never provided. But he provided something else. He has consistently showed me that his way, although mysterious, although there are questions I desperately want answered, and I believe I will someday in heaven, has shown me that he has actually been merciful to us, even in the midst of our loss and tragedy. And so there's something about the way of God that if anyone tries to oversimplify it to you and turn prayer into an equation, I don't think it's doing you any help. I think the best thing we can do is to understand when it comes to the way of God, there's mystery involved. But there's also mercy involved. And I think when anyone tries to give you a reason, most of the times it's not really helpful. But what I love in Scripture is although he doesn't provide every reason, he always provides purpose. There's something I want you to catch. God rarely gives answers. He didn't do it for Job. Like Job, literally at the end of the book, he's like, I, I've had it. He's like, I've been trying to keep it together this entire book. <laughs> but where are you, God? I've done nothing wrong. What's going on? You've sent me these friends and all of these things, and this is nothing is working out. And he's finally honest with God. And God never answers his request. He shows up and he just says, do you know who I am? And he goes on in this incredible speech of like, where were you when the earth was formed? Where were you when the snow fell on the mountain? Were you there? And he goes on and reveals who he is. And at the end of the book, he, he never answers Job's questions. Because we, as human beings, we actually believe a lie that reasons will actually help our hurting heart. Reasons won't help you. If God gave you the answers, it wouldn't take away the pain because we still live in a beautiful yet broken world. But what he does do is he gives you purpose. He says, I won't waste that pain. You may not know why that prayer wasn't answered. 
but I will never waste a tear. I preserve every single one of them, it says in the Psalms. I know exactly what you're going through. And if you let me, I will take that pain and I will repurpose it. I will redeem it in such a way that will actually allow you not only to heal, but be a part of others' healings who are walking through the same thing. And this is why I say that our our pain, our unanswered prayers may not have reasons, but it can have purpose. Parker Palmer, the Quaker writer, says this, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who became famous in the 60s for creating the five stages of grief, later on added a sixth one, has this beautiful quote. She says, The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concerns. Beautiful people do not just happen. God's way is mysterious. Yet, if we will continue to come to him and ask and seek and knock, even after the wake of disappointment, what we will find is a soul that becomes deep and beautiful and redeemed by God in such a powerful way because we've said, Lord, like Jesus, not my will, but yours. I don't get this, but I'm going to keep following you. Which leads to our last point here, which is God's will. And this is something I do want to hopefully leave you with. God's will says this. I'm sorry, God's will. John 11 says this. This is Jesus receiving word that his best friend Lazarus was sick. It says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Can I ask you something? Does anyone know the end of John chapter 11? Did Lazarus die? Yes. So something's going on here. Because... Lazarus did die. He was in the tomb for four days. Yet, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. So Jesus, I think, has a different definition of the word end. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Guys, because this, <laughs> I get comfort from this. I'm like, oh, so you loved them, so you didn't move quickly. Jesus loved them, so he stayed exactly where he was two more days. Because I think Jesus had a different definition of the word end, how it would end. And so if you skip down a few verses later, in verse 21, it says, Martha runs up. Martha said to Jesus, 
the same prayer that many of us in this room have prayed. And if you haven't, you will someday. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Like this, this shouldn't have happened. If you, I knew it, Jesus, if you were here, this would not be going on right now. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day, which was a common Jewish belief that there was a resurrection that would happen at the last day. Everyone would come up and Martha thinks he's referring to that. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, think about this, will never die. Do you believe this? Obviously, the story goes on that Jesus resurrects Lazarus. I want to read to you from Paul's letter later on in Romans chapter 8. And he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is all this talk, what, what is all this thing, this idea that Jesus says this won't end in death, and yet there was death, and what does it mean that Paul would say, listen, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's nothing going on that could ever draw you to that place. What, what Jesus and what the Apostle Paul is pointing to is that when Jesus thinks about this story, he views it within the lens of eternity. And if we are to understand God's will, especially in terms of unanswered prayer, if we're not looking through the lens of eternity, you will become so frustrated, you'll become disillusioned. It's only within the lens of eternity that all of a sudden everything starts to click. Everything starts to make sense. That every prayer we've ever prayed according to God's will will be answered. Even if it wasn't here on earth, we will see the full restoration of it. It's why in Revelation 21, it says, I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Listen to this. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is what anchors us in our prayers. It does not mean that Jesus will not, cannot, and does not invade our current circumstances with healing and supernatural power. He does it all the time. But the reality is, until Jesus returns, this creation is subject to frustration. And so when we face the subject of frustration, when we face this destination of our own brokenness in our bodies, in our relationships, in our world, in creation, when we experience that, what do we do? We groan. What? For this. 
we know that every prayer we pray along the will of God, even if right now it is temporarily suspended, ultimately will be fulfilled in Him. So we pray. We ask and we seek and we knock and then we keep asking and we keep seeking and we keep knocking and we see the kingdom spill over from heaven into earth. When we see it in people's bodies and in people's finances and people's marriage, we see it in our city, we see it when we pray these things. But when we see those prayers unanswered, we do not waver in our faith, but we remember that we live in an eternal narrative where every prayer according to God's will will be answered. And so guess what? Someday I'm going to dance with my niece again. Someday I'm going to sit down at the banqueting table with my father-in-law. I'm going to sit down with the countless people I've pastored who have had tears that have felt unanswered, that God bottled up every single one of them. I remembered every single one of them, but guess what? You're now in the place where there's no more tears and there's no more pain. And so we are people marked by eternity, not someday, but now. And we pray like it. And we say, Lord, we long for it. We groan for it. Would you bring it here now? So when Jesus comes and returns, he's not coming just to a bunch of people waiting for something to happen. But someone says, Lord, we want it now. And Jesus said, this is how you pray. Don't stop praying. My house is a house of prayer where we ask and we seek and we knock and then we do it again. And so this series on prayer can't end. Because this, if, if this ends, if our prayers end, then we've missed out on the beautiful invitation into the eternal life that Jesus says starts the minute we put our faith in him. Not someday when we die. It starts now because his presence is here. And if you're here this morning and you've wrestled with that, like, but God, why didn't you come through? I hope that you sense what Hebrews says, chapter 4, that he empathizes, he sympathizes. The Greek word literally means to suffer with. He suffers with you. Jesus knows what it's like to have an unanswered prayer. Think about that. He knows. So he's with you, but he does not leave you there. He walks with you and draws you to himself. I want to read you a prayer from a, from a poet named Ted Loder that does something really beautiful. He talks about unanswered prayers, but he ends his poem with prayers of gratitude. And maybe you want to pray this along in your own heart as I read this. He says, hear me quickly, Lord, for my mind soon wanders to other things I am more familiar with and more concerned about than I am with you. Words will not do, Lord. Listen to my tears, for I have lost much and fear more. Listen to my sweat, for I wake at night overwhelmed by darkness and strange dreams. Listen to my sighs, for my longing surges like the sea, urgent, mysterious, and beckoning. Listen to my growling gut, for I hunger for bread and intimacy. Listen to my curses, for I am angry at the way the world comes down on me, and sometimes, and I sometimes on it. Listen to my crackling knuckles for I hold very tightly to myself and anxiously squeeze myself into others' expectations and them into mine and then shake my fist at you for disappointing me. Listen to my footfalls for I stumble to bring good tidings to someone. Listen to my groans for I ache towards healing. Listen to my worried weariness for my work matters much to me and I needs help. Listen to my tension. For I ache towards accepting who I am and who I cannot be. 
Listen to my hunched back, for sometimes I can't bear the needs and demands of the world anymore and want to put it down and give it back to you. But listen to my laughter, for there are friends and mercy, and something urges me to think. Listen to my humming, for sometimes I catch all unaware of rhythms of creation and the music without words rises in me to meet it. And there is a joy of romping children and dancing angels. Listen to my blinking eyes for at certain moments when sunlight strikes just right or stars pierce the darkness just enough or clouds roll around just so or snow kisses the world in the quietness. Everything is suddenly transparent. And something in me is pure enough for an instant to see your kingdom in a glance. And so to praise you in a gasp, quick, then God, gone, but it's enough. Listen to me quickly, Lord. So what I want us to do, our kind of our final point this morning, is that we would become a church with rhythms of unceasing gratitude. So Paul says, his rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's the Greek word joy in verb form. Joy together. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul, the same author in his letter to the Thessalonians, says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? Paul, the person who's had unanswered prayers and answered prayers. Paul, the person who committed his life to the kingdom in the midst of his own martyrdom. You know what he says? Don't stop praying. And when you pray, he says this in both times, do it with thanksgiving. So if I, if I can encourage us in a lasting thought with our prayers, not only does it need to be resilient, but it needs to be filled with gratitude. We can be a thankful people in our prayers. We can be people who build within it rhythms of, of gratitude. Ronald Rollheiser says, what clear and simple and brief rituals provide is precisely prayer that depends upon something beyond our own energy. The rituals carry us our tiredness, our lack of energy, our inattentiveness, our indifference, and even our occasional distaste. They keep us praying even when we are too tired to muster up our own energy. So this is what I want to propose. I want to propose we end this series with new rhythms. And so there's, there's three things that I want to propose to you that we would have three moments in our day as a church we pray morning, midday, and evening. The morning would be about centering our heart on the Lord, revolving our life around Him and His kingdom. That midday would be about contending, which is when we intercede. And lastly, we would conclude every day with contentment, practicing gratitude and grace. So one thing I did this week in prepping for my sermon is now I have alarms every morning at 6 a.m. I have one at noon. I have one at 7 p.m. That says centering prayer, contending prayer, and contentment prayer. And I want to invite you to join me. I want you to, to find time to join us on a Tuesday morning.
want you to come find time to join us before a service to come pray, to make, to prioritize prayer. So just a quick word on each, and then we're going to pray. In the morning, I would encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer every morning. And as you pray that out to Him, I want you to pray one more passage. And it's just Psalm 23. But I want you to pray Psalm 23 in a receptive way, through a listening prayer. Lord, you're my shepherd. Just listen. I don't want anything because of what you are. Those are just simple ways. The Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23 to make that your morning ritual. In your midday, I would encourage you to take on your commute to your lunch spot or before you go to your next meeting, just take five, ten minutes and start making a list of who God is prompting your heart to intercede for, to, to ask the kingdom of heaven to spill over to people's lives. People who don't know the Lord have walked away from him to return. And the last thing is every evening would you in prayer or in your day with gratitude last quote I want to give you comes from Staten's book and it talks about the concept of what's called a Dainu prayer it says during the Jewish Passover the Israelites traditionally sang a gratitude song called Dainu Dainu means it would have been enough I once heard a pastor offer this translation, thank you, God, for overdoing it. Dainu prayers sound like, God, lunch today would have been enough, but you provided me with the resources to choose the type of food I wanted to eat and options to pick from. God, lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you created a world of flavor and spice and culture to make food more than fuel. It offers an artistic and delicious God, a delicious lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you gave me a co-worker to share a conversation with over that food. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. That's Dayinu prayer. And in 30 seconds or 30 minutes, that shows how we pray gratitude. This is such a small and manageable shift that we bear extraordinary fruit. What if you began to litter your dinner table with the fruit of the Spirit instead of the day's leftovers? God, thank you for overdoing it. Would you stand to your feet with me? As we end in this song, let's end God with our praise. Right now, would you just join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for overdoing it. Lord, even in the unanswered prayers and even in the things we feel confused about, your nature and who you are still stand. Your invitation to ask and seek and knock still stand. Our desire is that this would be a house of prayer, Lord Jesus, for everyone who would want to come in. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as people, like Paul said, we would not stop praying with thanksgiving in our heart. Lord God, so we say thank you for overdoing it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It would have been enough. Lord, you continue to meet us every single day with new mercy and with grace. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here in our midst. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.